So we've gotten through the entire prologue. We talk, oh, we didn't. The, the last part that I wanted to touch on, which we don't even need your, your sheet for, um, is talking about, talking about our confessions and our creeds. This would be like page, page 85 in your text or the, the last question from the last worksheet. Lesson four, I think it is. Um, so page 83 and following in your text, that's where we talk about the creeds and confessions. Um, and, and the main thing here is um, when we talk about creeds and confessions, they are necessary. Um, they are necessary because Christians are called to confess. Um, exactly as our gospel reading is going to talk about this coming Sunday, that, that Christians will be called to stand before princes and kings. And, uh, and Jesus says, don't worry about what you will say at that time, but the words will be given to you. And that's, um, that's, part, of, that's part of our Christian confession of faith. Um, sometimes I use that, that term a little bit more broadly, um, like our confession of faith. Um, and so every Sunday we use one of what we call the three ecumenical creeds. Um, and ecumenical just means that if you are a Christian, you will, you will confess this creed, include this in your confessions. Um, and so the three ecumenical creeds are the apostles, the Nicene and the Athanasian creed. Um, the apostles is the oldest. Um, it's probably based off of, or we have something similar to the apostles creed called the old Roman symbol. Um, that's almost 2000 years old. Uh, the Nicene creed came after that. Um, and and was finally finalized, I think, around the year 1000. Um, and then, and that's the other thing that, that there's um, a part in the Nicene Creed where we talk about the, what we call the fili filioque, which if it sounds like Latin, it is, um, it means, and, and the sun. So in the, in the Nicene Creed, we confess that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son, um, because that's the way Jesus talks on Monday, Thursday evening. He says that I will send the Holy Spirit to remind you of these things and the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. Um, and so part of the church, the, the Western, what is now the Western half of the church um, added that and the Eastern half did not agree to that addition. And uh, that was kind of the, the final part of the, the split, what we call the great schism or schism, if you prefer, of um, 1054. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of fun politics leading up to that. I've got a book on it. If you would like to borrow it. Um, I haven't read it probably. I think I wrote a check more recently than I, than I read that book. Um, so that's the, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, um, was not written by Athanasius, but it's named after Athanasius. Um, because when we talk about the, the heresies in the early Christian church, the two main things are number one, who is God and how do we, and together with that, how do we talk about God? Um, and so when we talk about God, how do we describe God as being triune, that he's three and that he's one at the same time? Um, and then what Greek words would they use to describe God so that they can talk about him clearly? Then the other controversy is about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is both true God and true man. Um, that he is true God from eternity. He's begotten from the father from eternity and also true man born of the Virgin Mary is my Lord. Um, the interesting thing about the, the Athanasian creed, it is, it is much longer. Um, that, I guess that's interesting. And you'll notice, um, secondly, it was originally written for like liturgical use. So like you think of the Te Deum or the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, um, some of the songs that we would sing in the worship service, the Athanasian Creed was written for that originally. Um, I don't know. I know that there have been a few people who have tried to set the Athanasian Creed to music. And it's, I guess it's kind of difficult because it repeats a lot. <laughs> um, so we haven't been successful in that, in, in having an Athanasian Creed set to music in English. Um, then the third thing that's kind of interesting about the Athanasian Creed is the statement at the, at the, that kind of bookends each half of the creed. Um, the first like two thirds is one section of the creed. And then the last third is the other section of the creed and like three, 
or maybe even four times throughout the creed, we have this statement, whoever does not firmly and faithfully believe this cannot be saved. And, um, and you hear that and it's like, amen, sit down, let's have the hymn of the day and let's have a sermon. Um, that's usually where it falls. And you hear that and you're like, wait, 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 time out. This doesn't sound very Lutheran. Um, how, can, how can you say that I have to believe or I have to do these things um, in order to be saved? And, uh, and, and I guess what he's just getting at is it's a statement of law that is a statement of warning that we ought not to disregard these things and think that they are of you know, trivial matters, um, but rather it's a statement of warning to not, um, to not you know, disregard what God has said about these doctrines. That is, that is different in kind entirely from being a statement of gospel encouragement to Christians for living out, living out a godly life. Um, it, and I think the only way to properly understand those statements is to see that it is a statement of law. Um, so then together with that, those are the three ecumenical creeds. As a Lutheran church, we also subscribe to all the, the creeds of the Book of Concord, or all the statements of belief there. Uh, so the Book of Concord of 1580. Um, and there are six of them that are contained there. We've got the Augsburg Confession. Um, so that was like June 25th, 1530. Every year toward the end of June, we have Augsburg Confession Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Have the Elka churches revised the Book of Concord? Um, not to my knowledge. They, but it it does play in. <laughs> One of the the best Lutheran scholars. I don't know if he's still alive anymore. Um, was an Elka man professor who Robert Kolb, um, and he was the general editor for the the blue version of the Book of Concord. <laughs> so we've got. Um, the green version, which is the, the triglot, it has Latin, German, and English in it. Um, and then back in the 50s or 60s, there was the red version, which was in just the English. And then a blue version was the updated English. And then a couple of copies that we have in our library here um, is the only version that has never put me to sleep. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that. It's uh, kind of the, a sim simplified version of the English from the, the triglot. Um, and so when we get to, you know, where do these, how do these confessions fit, the way that people often end up throwing them out is by trying to make, a, make us say something that we aren't, or trying to put a confession in a role that says that, is, that isn't necessary for a confession. And so kind of the, the ELCA, or at least the, the spirit that resulted in the ELCA throughout the 20th century said, we don't need confessions. They're like paper fences. We've got a Bible. You've got your confessions there and I've got my Bible. And, um, and my, I know my Bible is the word of God and the word of God is in these pages. And, and that, sounds, that sounds appealing at first because it's like, well, you're right. I, I don't need confessions because I have the Bible. Um, but it is completely a, a red herring argument to kind of throw you off the track. Um, no, we don't need confessions because we have the Bible, but that's not the purpose of these confessions. It's not to replace the Bible. It's to reflect the Bible so that um, heretics and false teachers can't find a place to hide. <laughs> and that's uh, one, of, one of the two ways, uh, two major ways in which the ELCA as early as, you know, they're that idea um, grew out of, in large part, it grew out of the Seminex movement um, in the Missouri Synod. Um, the Seminex was the walkout at Fort Wayne, I think in 1973 or 71. Um, and, um, and then after that, then a lot of those people ended up near Chicago and, um, and kind of started their own seminary when that resulted in 1984, I think is the official start date of the ELCA. And they partnered with a lot of um, very spiritually liberal church bodies on the, on the, on the West Coast, the left coast, if you will. Um, and so they tried, to, they tried to minimize the role of confessions. And even... Um, I haven't been on the ELCA website for a while, but, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was writing a paper on it, I went to their website and they had like Luther seal and pictures of Luther and quotes from Luther all over it. 
Uh, but when they talk about confessions, the, the difference is, is two Latin words, a quia subscription to a confession or a quatanus subscription to the confession. The quia subscription to the confessions means that we subscribe or we believe we, we confess this this confession because, that's the word quia, because it accurately reflects the word of God. The quatanus subscription says that I, I will confess this confession of faith as far as it aligns with the word of God. And there's usually no listing of um, what parts that don't align with the word of God. And so that's the, the first major way is they, they will um, modify their subscription. And so, you know, when you have a pastor installed or ordained, um, one of the questions, do you um, unapologetically or uh, without reservation subscribe to the unaltered Augsburg Confession and all the confessions of the 1580 Book of Concord? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and that is a quia subscription that we, that, that, that confession is not on the same par as scripture, it's not a replacement for scripture, but it definitely reflects what scripture has said. Um, and so the first way that the, the people in the Elka want to call themselves Lutheran, I mean, you can't call yourself Lutheran if you don't subscribe to the 1580 Book of Concord. The first way is they say, well, I subscribe to it as far as, as far as it belongs to the word of God. And it sounds good because then they'll be like, but, you know, we're sinful people that wrote this. And so, you know, you can't be absolutely sure that every word of it is exactly, exactly God's word. Well, yeah, sinful people wrote it, but we have a Bible and that's not the purpose of the confession. The other way that they, that they try to, um, separate themselves from, from Lutheranism or give themselves some wiggle room is by, is by making Martin Luther a Lutheran very early on. Like Luther posted the 95 theses in 1517, but he probably wasn't, you know, truly Lutheran in his doctrine until 1521. And there's a good four years of, of his writings in between there where he, he's starting to get it. Um, and he talks very highly about, you know, faith and a few other things, but, um, but he's, he's not there yet. And so if they, if they, they will, if this ever comes up, they try to move his Lutheran conversion date back about as early as they can in order to include at least three years of his other writings that are not quite orthodox yet, but they, they can, you can take out snippets here and there and make it sound good. Um, and so, so I guess in, in that regard, um, I, I use the, the blue um, Blue Book of Concord going through college that was published by Augsburg Fortress Press up in Minneapolis. That's the e major ELCA publishing house. Um, and then, and then around that time, Concordia came out with the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which is that newer version. Um, and every Sunday, there's a little snippet on the front of the bulletin from that one. So, you know, the, the quia subscription is basically saying, do you believe that this confession accurately reflects the word of God? And you subscribe to this because it reflects the word of God. Um, and then, you know, more broadly, the, the purpose of confessions, this is the last part. Um, and when we talk about confession, we talk about, we use that term in like two, two different ways. We talk about like a confession of faith, and we also have a confession of sins. Um, in a sense, they're, they're kind of linked in that you're just saying what you know is true. I confess to you that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I know that's true. God knows that's true. We know that's true based on the word of God. Um, or I confess, you know, this is what, this is what God's word says, according to, you know, on the topic of the triune God, I confess this because I know it's true because God's word says it's true and it's my duty to confess it. But when we get to a, what is a confession and a confession of faith, um, the, other, the other major element is that it always has two parts. This is what we call the uh, confessional formula. Um, and so it's the, the first part is saying, this is what we believe. 
And then the second part is this is what we reject, or this is what we don't believe, um, or we condemn. <laughs> um, and so those are always the two parts between what we believe and what we don't believe. And you have to have both in order to have a clear confession of faith, or else, um, you know, all the world will, you know, this is one of the fun things about um, when somebody's like, well, pastor, I just moved out of the area. And, uh, and here's the website for the, the church that I just checked out. Could you check it out for me? And you go to their statement of belief page and what do we believe? And it's got all the simple stuff. Like we believe in the apostles creed. We believe in the inherency of scripture. It's like, okay, good. But there is nothing about the second half of a confessional formula. They, they say what they believe. They don't say what they don't believe. And you need both or else somebody's going to be hiding in the weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that is that is a good question. Yeah, and and I think arguments could be made on both sides. Um, with the with the Nicene Creed, we're talking. Um, there are a there are a couple of you know even early translations of the Nicene Creed from the from the authoritative text of the Nicene Creed that uses the singular or that uses the plural. So I or we, um, and where it starts to get a little thorny is. Our 1993 hymnal used the translation from the Book of Common Prayer of either 1973 or 1978. And, um, and, and so that, that kind of became the convention of using either I or we. But the, and, and for me, I'm like, it, it's a coin flip. Aside from the fact that we don't want to unilaterally change what are ecumenical creeds, that the creeds belong to the church. Um, that, that's what makes them ecumenical. Um, just like the Augsburg Confession, uh, Philip Melanchthon wrote the Augsburg Confession, and it was approved and or submitted and approved by all of these Lutheran princes. So that confession didn't belong to him anymore, even though he was the one who put pen to paper. Um, he thought it belonged to him. And so over, over like the next six to eight years, he started making little changes to it here and there. Um, and, and it was the Lutherans think it was actually some Calvinists or some Roman Catholics, maybe that, that caught it and said, all right, which one? And, and then the Lutherans are like, wait, time out. We didn't say that. And so that's why when we get to the Augsburg confession, um, we always say, you know, the unaltered Augsburg confession of 1530. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, the, the Nicene creed. I'm, I didn't, I didn't know about this very much until we had a discussion about it online, um, probably a year ago or so. And, and I, I, in hindsight, I would have hoped that they would have adjusted the Nicene Creed for the new blue hymnal to better reflect what um, both the ELS and what the Missouri Synod do with their hymnal, which probably matches up with um, a greater majority of Christianity. Um, as it is the translation that is in the pages of our blue hymnal is kind of used by a minority slice, um, among Christianity and, um, and the ones that also, even the ELCA had, had moved away from that translation by the time we put it in, in our hymnal. And, and part of that also is that they left out, they left out words that, which is why I printed in the bulletin and then I underlined the words that, you know, would be different from the 1993 hymnal. Uh, here's the hint. They're also different from the hymnal that's in our pew racks, <laughs> um, where it says for us and our, for our salvation, Christ Jesus, you know, was made man, um, et cetera. Um, they left out the, some word to refer to people. And so it's like that, that sounds like a minor thing. 
Um, but for us people or for us humans, um, we don't, for us men, it's not modern English convention to use men to refer to all people. Um, we usually refer to mixed group as people or, or humans. Um, and to, to leave that out would be, would open up that confession to say, well, either Jesus came for only the elect for us and for our salvation, or, um, it would broaden it out to a very, you know, spiritually and politically liberal evolutionary ideology or, um, environmental ideology for us that Jesus came for all the flowers and the trees and all the birds and all the baby seals and all the whales, um, as well as for, for us people. Um, and so, and then that was a later thing, um, that translation that he was made fully human or for, I think, or he was, yeah. And that, that's, that's what we switched back to. And he was made man. And, uh, and that one is, is helpful. Um, if it was only by a quirk of language that the Greek word there for, um, to make, to have been made man is, is kind of a, this compound word that's like three words long and smushed together. Um, but by a quirk of language, when we say that he was made man, it's, it's very similar to the word we had earlier uh, for us humans or, and for our salvation. It might even be the same word. I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, but by a quirk of language, we are also confessing that Jesus is, is male, that he wasn't confused about his gender, that he wasn't transgender, that, uh, or whatever the case may be. Um, and so that, and that's the way that the Missouri Synod and the ELS both translated the phrase of the Nicene Creed. He was made man. Um, and so that's what we use for that. And, uh, for, and then for the other part, um, for us and for our salvation, I think it is a little deficient because it doesn't fully handle the word that is actually there in the authoritative text. Um, and so we use for us humans and for our salvation, it probably would have been more poetic if pastor Hagen said, well, for us people and for our salvation, but you know, we're eight months in and it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep and and it and it wasn't a completely unilateral decision either in that um they do they do have some very early and widespread precedent um in the use of the nicene creed for using using we instead of i um and i think it, it is it is kind of nice then that, you know aside from i'm glad they didn't put me on the hymnal committee um but then we have the apostles creed i believe in god the father almighty and then the the nicene creed is the one that we other one we use regularly and we've got uh, a we statement um and i think you know just from an, an outside perspective i don't know if i can call myself that um it is it is kind of nice to have an individual as well as as well as a group thing and as long as it's not something that they made up um on their own but there is a little bit of precedent for it so it's it's not there, there are other fish that that i can fry and we can at least uh you know amend it as we've got it in the bulletin and uh and go with that for a while Mhm. Yeah. And and I think um I think there are a few things in scripture where where God talks about it being both ways. Um such as raising Jesus from the dead that Jesus laid down his life, Jesus took it up again. Um, or in Ephesians 1, that God exercised his power in raising Jesus from the dead. Um, or we talk about good works. Who, who is it that does good works? Is it the Christian or is it the Holy Spirit through the Christian? Well, yes, it's both ways. Um, exactly as with raising Jesus from the dead. And so I think just just generally um, that, that both are true. I, I believe that 
this and we believe this as, as a collective that end and the reminder that there's no such thing as like a lone ranger christian who's completely on their own they are united with the the holy christian church um of all space and time so. mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and you know now that we've got the got the hymnals and um and the translation that we've used for about 30 years or, or so um to just work from the practical what is the comfort that we have here that yes we have christians you know in 40 other countries that are confessing the same thing with us as as being united um with us and um i, I guess that's kind of where i end up yeah mm -hmm. yeah and 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 that's kind of the assumption that the ecumenical creeds, if you are a Christian, you will confess these creeds, <coughs> um, that this is part of your confession of faith, that you, there are Christians, and this is, this is always a trend that comes around like every probably 10 years, um, or I guess 15 years off and on, um, where people get so caught up, well, we need, we need deeds, not creeds. I need a practical faith. Um, I don't want to hear about what good heaven is going to do. I need something that's going to give me comfort for now or Christians making a difference now. And this emphasis on what we do rather than what we say we believe as if the two were disconnected. It's another straw man argument. Um, and so somebody who comes from that sort of a background might, might come to our church or a, a similar church, and they might not join in that confession of faith, but it, you know, with a, with a tiny bit of instruction, you know, they could say, well, this is reflected, reflective of what is in scripture and it is proper for Christians to confess. And, um, and realistically that idea of deeds, not creeds is a, a new innovation that, that keeps coming around. And, um, and it has never been beneficial beyond, beyond one generation. Whereas we've got this creed and a set of creeds that go back over two millennia. Um, and that certainly have been beneficial to the longevity of the church. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of the creeds talks about the descent into hell. Um, I don't think, I think it's the Nicene Creed that doesn't. Yeah, because the Apostles' Creed does. Um, the descent into hell is... Um, is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I'll confess that right right away. Um, and the and and it's one that has been difficult and caused confusion for Christians for a long time. I don't remember the exact reason why it wasn't included in the Nicene Creed and it was included in the Apostles' Creed. Um, although, if if I'm yeah. Yeah, the, 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 no, it should be, if, if I left it out of the Apostles' Creed, then that was a typo on me where I did copy and paste incorrectly. Um, it should be in the Apostles' Creed. Um, it probably was not uh, originally in the Nicene Creed, and it's not in the Nicene Creed because it wasn't a point of, of confusion and confession. That we, you know, we, we have a confession that speaks to the problems <laughs> predominantly. Okay. Anything else and that gets us into the, the broad and narrow sense of theology, um, chapter five. So we have covered the prologue and we get into theology. I'll give you a minute with those seated nearby from that section, um, talking about theology, broad sense, narrow sense, what motivates us to study theology and what is the difficulty that we face? Uh, to either review or uh, with the person sitting sitting next to you or by yourself, um, just to get our minds back into this one. I'm going to grab a water.
<laughs> I know, I know. All right. So we are now, we have covered four chapters of the book and we are getting into what is theology. <laughs> All right. So broadly speaking, what do we mean by theology? Excellent. So yeah, just the study of the Bible, um, study of religious things that a person could get a degree in theology at a college and, um, and they would have exposure to a lot of different religions and, and people's attempts to, to know God. Um, and then more specifically, the narrow sense is uh, literally the, the study of God. Um, it's not just the study of you know, religious things, um, but talking about who is and what is God. As far as why, um, <clears throat> maybe I'm not sitting in the best spot, um, but our motivation, um, I like this quote from page 95 in your text, that fear alone might drive that desire. If God exists and if I am accountable to him, then I need to know how to please or at least how to satisfy him. But love instead of fear should impel each Christian even more to want to get to know as much as possible about God. And there is a little end there. Um, and just thinking about that and recognizing that for the Christian, that sort of um, God-given sense of love is something that ought to drive like everything we do. So and what's the difficulty when we talk about the study of God uh, specifically? What is part of the difficulty here? Joe? All right. It is, um, it is above us to completely grasp and, and even to define God. You know, getting a definition of God takes a while. Anything else? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And definitely. And, and I think that kind of the way that it was explained to me once is um, that we humans like to think in something is logical and illogical, that something is rational and irrational. Um, and that we have a God who is supra logical, that he is above our human capacity for logic, and he is supra rational, that he is above our human capacity for reason. Um, it's not illogical, it's definitely orderly, but it, but, but it, you know, knowing God completely is still something that is, is above our human capacity. And the difficult part then is that we, that we don't say, okay, well, it's, it's beyond us and, and we can't know. So throw up our hands and what's the use? Well, there's a lot that we can know um, precisely because God has accommodated himself to, to our language um, and accommodated himself to, to us because he wants us to know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, together with that, I think you know, what, what my parents always said, can't get there from here. Got to go somewhere else first. Um, that occasionally there, there are things that, 
that our human minds will will never comprehend fully, but that are that are statements of faith, you know, like Holy Communion. Um, I can't comprehend any any particular different taste between a wafer before the service versus a wafer during the service. Um, but that's where Jesus said it, so it must be true. And um, and so I'll just go on that promise. Or when we go um, and we'll talk about the the doctrine of election. And that's a fantastic part of this book um, where he talks about election as a doctrine of comfort for believers. And, and the, the question that always comes up is if God is serious that he wants all people to be saved and that he chooses people for salvation, then why are people not saved? It, um, it, it's a very logical appeal to our, to our human reason. Um, but it tries to force together two, two questions that scripturally are answered differently with very different contexts. That why are some saved? Um, because of God's grace in electing them and bringing them to faith through his means. And then why are others not? Because of their sinful rejection. And um, <laughs> that, that's simple enough to say. And, but then, you know, on a daily basis <clears throat> or whenever it comes up to say, well, I will risk, I, I will look a fool rather than try to make this palatable and understandable to somebody else. Um, that's, that's exactly the role of faith. Or even the, the concept of, of a God who willingly allows himself to be crucified and suffers hell for, for you know, <laughs> the way Luther called himself, um, I'm nothing but a, a, bag, a stinking bag of maggots. <laughs> Eek. Um, but that, but that, to, to, he said that to kind of magnify the difference between Jesus, the son of God and the, the creation for whom he died. And when you think about that, even the gospel sounds, um, sounds illogical and anti-rational. And that's where, you know, first Corinthians, um, especially like chapter one really steps in that God was pleased in the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Um, and that he purposely chose something that, that would make human reason look utterly foolish. So that in the foolishness of the cross, um, we have the foolishness of man um, amplified, I guess. How about the word Trinity? This is a good uh, catechism question. How many times does the word triune appear in the Bible? Zip dot none. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you read it in there. Um, yeah, so try meaning three. <laughs> it's true. Try meaning three and un meaning one. Um, but, you know, the, the image on the screen here, um, the, what is that, from St. Patrick? I, I think that was, might be who it's attributed to. I might be wrong on that. Um, that the, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the, the Father. Okay. And, and just that, that concept that, um, that, there's, that there are things beyond our comprehension, um, and that at the same time, God wants us to study these things that we may grow in them. Yeah. Yeah. Hypothetically speaking. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's good advice. 
um, where we are talking about the same God from beginning to end. But in the person and work of Jesus, we have the, the fullest and the, the final um, revelation of who God is and what God is like. Um, that even in the Old Testament, some of the most beautiful passages, you know, talking about what God would do. And, and then, you know, it's a shadow of the things that are to come. And the reality is found in Christ that we see Jesus, you know, there at the cross on Good Friday, um, and the different different statements that he says, um, or the, the different miracles that he does, where he is, he is, in all that he does, he is revealing God's character to you and to me. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a, that's a fairly good way of understanding it. Um, with the, with the understanding also that this same Jesus who, who raised the dead, walked on water and, um, and squabbled with the Pharisees is the one who, who comes at the end of time in, in holiness and judgment on, on all people. Um, so we don't want to, I mean, we, we see the fullness of God's character, but we also see, um, both his, his justice and his grace that, that both coexist in this person of Jesus. And the only place where, you know, justice and grace towards sinners is meet is in the cross where there you can look at the cross and say that, you know, here's the place where we see God's wrath in all of its wrathfulness and also the place where we see God's grace in all of its graciousness. Anything else? Internal and external works. Oh yeah. All right. Um, any insights from the about the Trinity from the following passages? I think that Genesis one. Um, you can probably even recall that. You know, yeah. Let us make man in our own image. Um, the the plural uh, verb there. That God. Um, all three persons of God are active. And that's, you know, like a conversation within, within the Trinity. And we saw that at the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth, and especially verse two, talking about um, the earth was formless and empty and the spirit of God was on the waters and then God speaks. And so there in the first two verses of the Bible, you've got um, already a, you know, fairly, I would say a fairly good allusion to God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit with um, in the beginning, God, and the spirit is on the surface of the waters. And then God speaks and where John chapter one um, connects that word with the person of Jesus. Why don't we look at that Isaiah chapter 42? <laughs> You've got your Bible. All right. So book of Isaiah, um, if you open up to the center of your Bible, that'll land you in the book of Psalms. If it didn't try again. And then Isaiah is just after that. Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, do we have a volunteer to read for us? Go ahead, Lois. <laughs> I did. I did. Go ahead, Lois. <laughs> I almost called on Tim. Light of the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, 
place yourself in the dungeon and fell to seven dark times. I my pain, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to my Lord. That's okay. Great, thank you. Um, so what do we see about the triune God in um, in these verses? Can give you a minute or two if you need to need a minute. Yeah. 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 So that that is um one of the major things to see with the prophet Isaiah. Um, especially in chapter 40 through the end, there are a few of these, what we would call a servant song, where he talks about this servant. Um, and when he when he talks about this servant, he talks about the servant in a way that isn't just like some average servant or even a, a, a decent servant like King David, um, but he's talking about a, a servant with a specific task. Um, Laura. Definitely. Um, and that, that is, that is a, a major point here. Um, I am placing my spirit on him that, that Jesus, you know, that, that is God, the father speaking about sending the spirit, um, and pouring out his spirit on his son in, in a special way. Um, and I guess the, the other, you know, kind of major thing that we see here is that this servant um, is, is kind of described in how he will act in verses, verses two through five or four. And, and that this servant is talked about in the same way that God talks about himself, um, that the coastlands are waiting for his law and that he will faithfully bring forth a just verdict. And I guess verse four, that he will establish justice on the earth. And, um, and that, and then I guess down in verse six through six through seven, um, Jesus actually refers to this in the New Testament when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus saying, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? And, um, and he refers to this or a section very similar from it, also from Isaiah, um, the opening the eyes of the blind and bringing prisoners out of justice or out of, out of the dungeon, sorry. And so with that, um, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, the, the I in you, the I in verses six and seven, talking about um, God, the father speaking and the you talking about Jesus. And then, but then together with it, you know, verse eight, the recognition that this, that this Messiah is, um, he is one and the same in essence, as the only true God, um, that God is a jealous God who does not give his glory to another. And so when he's talking about this servant who does things that God does, who is going to have authority that only God has, then this servant has to be God or else um, God would not conclude with verse 8 that this servant has to be um, this, this chosen one on whom his spirit dwells um, has to be the true God because God does not, does not share his glory with anyone else. That's one of the, 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 the concepts um, that we talk about in this section on the Trinity. I'm fairly, fairly certain we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, about the difference between the person, the persons of God and the essence of God. Um, and that's, that's basically the, the picture of the shield, that there are the three persons of God, um, not people, but persons, but each one is completely God. So each one is in essence, God, um, or as our, you know, confessions said, or say, you know, very God from very God, true God from true God, um, of the same being with the father or of the same essence with the father. And that's where that, that's even, even that word essence, um, is based on, based off of a Latin word that means to be. And so we kind of, you know, the translation now is of the same being with the father, uh, it's not a bad thing to be familiar with the term essence, 
and maybe I should talk about it in a sermon sometime, that that essence of the same of the same being or the same essence that they're God in the exact same way. Anyway, well, hopefully we'll, we'll touch on that, even if it's not included in the, uh, the content of this chapter or so. I th think that about wraps us up. So next time that will get us on to the internal and external works of the Trinity. And I guess that's the, at the very bottom of, of the front page. We worship one God in three persons and three persons in one God without mixing the persons or dividing the divine being. Um, you could say dividing the divine essence. Um, not that it communicates better by using the term essence, but it, it is a slightly more technical term than being. We'll just have all the pet peeves. <laughs> Any questions or other comments as we wrap up tonight? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. And so when, when Simeon is holding, is holding the infant Jesus, um, he, he probably has this or, or a similar old Testament prophecy in mind that the Messiah went just before the Jewish people, but also for, um, the Gentiles as well. So I guess with that, we will close with prayer. We pray. Uh, dear Jesus, we thank you um, for accommodating yourself to our language um, and for joining our human race and for revealing the character and person and work of God and all that you have done and continue to do on our behalf. We ask you to give us a firm confidence in all that you have said and a trust that you will continue to uh, work on behalf of your church, both here and around the world, to the glory of your name. We pray. Amen.